The year, 260 BC. The place, India. A great conqueror puts aside the ways of war and follows the eightfold path of the Buddha. He is Ashoka, the greatest of the Mauryan dynasty, the first emperors of India. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and today's episode is going to be awesome. This is episode 19, Caesars of India. It's going to be great, guys. We're going to talk about warfare in ancient India from the earliest days to the rise and fall of India's first great empire, the Mauryan Dynasty. We're really getting away from Europe, guys, and we won't be going back there for some time because there are unknown soldiers all over the world that we got to learn about. I do have some minor intro bits I want to get out of the way in this episode. First, I'll be using some words that need a little clarification. The first one is the term India. In 2021, South Asia is divided up into several different countries, none of which existed in the ancient era. So when I refer to India today, I'm referring to all of the Indian subcontinent, not the Republic of India, a geographic region, not the modern political country, the political entity. There's also the term Hinduism as a way of describing a certain set of beliefs and traditions that have lasted in India since ancient days. While Hinduism is a name that outsiders gave to what is now the majority religion in modern India, and there is no such thing as established Hinduism as such, I'm going to sacrifice a little accuracy for clarity and refer to these traditions by that name. If this leads to inaccuracies, I sincerely apologize. Second big thing is a lot of today's history is extremely sketchy, based on fragments of documents, archaeology, and oral traditions. Assembling a narrative from ancient history is always difficult, and for India pre-200 BC, there is very, very little hard evidence. Gonna be a lot of me saying maybe, or probably, or around so-and-so BC, or one source says today. I'll also refer to what I call multiple-choice history, that is, when there are several conflicting versions of the same event. Kind of like all the Joker's backstories in the movie The Dark Knight. Who knows which one is true? But that's just the way it is, so I'll ask you to bear with me. As always, of course, guys, this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. Podcast is PG-13, language is clean, content is not. All my sources, some images, some maps, some commentary are on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. So if you want it, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, mistakes are my own. As my sister, who does know India, has informed me, I do not get the pronunciations right some of the time, and I will once again beg your forgiveness. But still, everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So let's begin. What is war supposed to look like? What is the ideal form of human conflict? Your first reaction might be none, and that is absolutely valid. But if we accept conflict as unavoidable, organized violence as something that all societies experience, what is that conflict supposed to look like? Are people supposed to fight in a certain way, with certain traditional tactics and methods? Is war supposed to have rules? Are people supposed to adhere to a certain model of honor and nobility? Is there a moral or ethical way to wage war, or should people just do whatever it takes to win? When is a war justified, or is war ever justified? 
These are, of course, questions that still have a lot of relevance, and I'm not going to answer them today. But I want to introduce a concept in today's episode that comes from the great military historian John Lynn. There is this difference between a society's ideal form of war, what war is supposed to look like, versus the messy reality. See, there are all these ideas, right, about what war is supposed to be. And societies around the world throughout history have assembled these, what some historians call, frames of war. They're trying to fit something messy, complicated, unpredictable, and nasty into a neat little box and say, this is the way a war is supposed to be. A frame of war is an attempt to answer those difficult questions, an ideal concept of what war should be. And even if the frame never matches the reality, it still tells us a lot about the way societies view and think about war. The thing is, too, this is an old conflict, this is an old argument, the difference between the frame and the reality. The questions I asked just a minute ago have puzzled people around the world for millennia. Is war ever justified? What is the ethical way to fight a war? Is there an ethical way? And how do we handle it when our frame doesn't match our reality? The fact that we're still asking those same questions about war and conflict shows us that there are plenty of different answers, plenty of different frames to go around. I always make it my goal to reach back and find the humanity in the people we meet, to find the real human experience between beneath all that dust and beneath all that, you know, through all this time. And this is unusually difficult in today's episode because of the lack of written sources for a lot of these events. But the people of ancient India, India, centuries before the birth of Jesus Christ, asked their own questions and had their own beliefs about what war should look like. They questioned the morality and nature of conflict in ways that sound absolutely modern. The people of ancient India were asking a lot of those same questions about war, and some of them even had answers. Whether any of those answers is satisfactory is entirely up to you. Today, we'll be talking about the Mauryan emperors, the first great rulers of the Indian subcontinent. We're going to see how wars were fought in the age of the great Hindu epics. We'll meet the conqueror Chandragupta Maurya and his ruthless prime minister Kautilya and see them create the Maurya Empire. And we will see how Chandragupta's grandson Ashoka became one of the only rulers of the ancient world to put aside the ways of conquest and follow a path of peace. We'll witness ancient Indians try to build three different frames of war. And at the end, I will tell you why it matters. You should care. And I'm going to tell you why. And because this is an epic story, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, change your oil, do your nails, whatever you got to do. So mount your chariot and sharpen your sword. Or put away the sword entirely. Either way, we're going on campaign. Where are we going, you ask? Well, we know we're going to India, but the big question is when? I'm going to start with the first people of ancient India to leave us with a real historical record who created ancient India's first frame of war. Let's start with the Aryans. Now you say, James, I know that word. That's a word Hitler used. And you're right. Adolf Hitler used the idea of an Aryan race as part of his misbegotten goulash of racial theories. I'll explain that a bit more later. So our story begins when a people who would eventually refer to themselves as the Aryans begin to enter India. 
How did they enter India? Well, how does every land invader enter India? That's right. The Khyber Pass is making a reappearance in this podcast. I mentioned it back in way back in episode one when I talked about the British invasion of Afghanistan. The Khyber Pass connects Afghanistan and the Indian subcontinent. It was the default choice for travel, trade, and invasion between India and the rest of Asia. Now, the Aryans migrated through the Khyber Pass sometime between 2000 to 1500 BC, and from 1500 to 500 BC, they spread out across most of India. And these dates are all very vague, as most dates today will be. There are very few hard dates when it comes to ancient India. But I'll tell you guys, stuff like this is happening all over the ancient world. Just random hordes of people migrating this way and that like drunk college kids playing bumper cars. There's like three or four in a big pile up over here, one girl going in circles singing Taylor Swift, one guy sleeping in the corner, you get the analogy. Just human cultures and languages and peoples ending up in all kinds of weird places around the Eurasian landmass. We can trace the origins of the Aryans by the things that they share with other ancient civilizations. For instance, the Aryans used a language called Sanskrit, which shares its roots with Persian, Armenian, Pashtun, and the vast majority of European languages. All of these languages are part of one big family, the Indo-European language group. Aryan is very close and probably has the same root as the term the Persians used for their new homeland, Iran. Aryan, Iran, get it? And their religious stories are similar too. The Hindu god Indra, bears more than a passing resemblance to other thunder-wielding war gods like Thor, Zeus, the Slavic god Perun, and the Celtic god Tyrannus. This points to a common origin for European, Iranian, and Aryan peoples somewhere in Central Asia. Now, the 1500-year Aryan migration was a long, complicated process, and there were already people living in India. One group was the Adivasi, the indigenous forest and mountain tribes who were probably India's first inhabitants. Another group were the speakers of the Dravidian languages, which are still the dominant languages in southern India. And the Aryans interacted with these groups in various ways. One of those ways was violence. Very rarely in ancient history does a large migration occur without some stabbing and shooting here and there. This is where the term area begins to spring up. It means something like noble. It was a term the newcomers used to distinguish themselves from the original inhabitants. It wasn't used racially, but as a way to describe a way of life, the Sanskrit language and the still evolving religion of Hinduism. We do these things, the Aryans do these things, everybody else does those things. The Aryans definitely fought the Adivasi and the Dravidians, but sometimes they mixed and mingled with them, creating new communities in the process, like any migration. Still though, this invasion was what got all 19th century European racists all excited, because obviously brown people couldn't have founded this amazing Indian civilization. No, the Aryans had conquered India like all good master races do, but interbreeding with the lower races had removed their magical white powers or something. So this is the origin of Hitler's cuckoo racial beliefs, which bear no resemblance to reality. So Aryans in ancient Indian history, nothing like Hitler's racial theories. We've established that, moving on. Our big problem with ancient Indian history is that we have zero surviving written sources from 2000 to 500 BC. Zilch, nada. But those are written sources. There are different kinds of history. Among our earliest sources for ancient India are the oral histories, starting with the Vedas. 
The Vedas are the oldest Sanskrit works, the foundations of what we know as the Hindu religion and of Indian law and society. They discuss blessings, rituals, sacrifices, ceremonies, and some concepts of philosophy and spiritual knowledge. Historians often just call this age when the Vedas were composed the Vedic Age. Now, the Vedas were composed orally, as in people had to remember them all perfectly. It was someone's entire job to remember the Vedas perfectly, because the Hindu faith regards them as an authorless divine revelation. You mess that up, it's like changing a word in the Bible. Screw one thing up and congratulations, now the commandment somehow says thou shalt commit adultery. Gosh, wouldn't that be a problem? For most people at least. But the Vedas cover many areas of ancient Indian life, not just philosophy and religion. One of the most important things the Vedas helped to establish was the Indian social system that is incorrectly known to Westerners as the caste system, but what the Rig Veda calls Varna. This is a hierarchical structure where, that separates the society into four Varnas, or occupational divisions. These were originally occupational, not based on birth, but this became a more rigid social structure closer to a class system in the following centuries. The Rig Veda describes how each of the Varnas is like a part of the body. The head is the Brahmin, the priestly class, including teachers and scholars. The arms are the Kshatriyas, the warrior and ruler class. The thighs were the Vaishyas, the merchants and craftsmen. Finally, the feet were the Shudras, the laborers and workers. Now, this doesn't mean that people of each Varna are locked into that occupation. It's more of an outline than a rule. Later Indian societies would change and modify the Varna system, and it's way, way more complex than I'm describing here. But these ideas of Varna, or caste, did have a real impact on Indian civilization, society, and war. Because you're wondering at this point, James, when are you going to get to the fighting? I want to see some action! This isn't unknown ancient societies. Don't worry, have I ever let you down before? All of this background was necessary to explain why we have no historically reliable records of war fighting in the Age of the Vedas or the Age of the Epics. No campaign narratives, no battle diagrams, almost no images. But what we do have are the Sanskrit epics, the great achievements of ancient Indian literature. And these are full of fighting. Putting aside whether or not the events described in the epics were real, that's a different question. We can learn from these epics what ancient Aryan India thought about war. The Mahabharata and the Ramayana are the most important works of Indian literature. These ancient Sanskrit epics are kinda comparable to the ancient Greek Iliad and Odyssey. They are embedded in Indian cultural memory, the same way that Aesop's fables or old biblical stories are embedded in American memory. I can say Noah's Ark, Romeo and Juliet, or the tortoise and the hare, and you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. For a Hindu, I could say Rama and Sita, or Yudhisthira's dice game, and they would probably be pretty recognizable. The Ramayana is the story of Rama, a legendary prince who must free his wife Sita from Ravana, the demon king of Sri Lanka. The Ramayana is just a little bit longer than the Biblical Old Testament, and it resembles the Odyssey, with a hero trying to free his wife from an unwanted suitor. But since it involves North Indian heroes invading and defeating South Indian quote-unquote demons, some historians believe the Ramayana is an analogy for the Aryan invasions and migrations, with the demons representing the Adivasi and Dravidian-speaking peoples, which might cast a little bit of a different light on that story. 
The Mahabharata, on the other hand, tells of a bitter civil war between two groups of cousins, culminating in a final epic battle. Much like the Iliad, it is an epic story of war and conflict, with a massive cast of characters and lots of divine entities involved, and you might be thinking, wow, I should read this. Hold your horses, the Mahabharata is long. It is about 1.8 million words long, longer than the entire Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings series combined. But from these epics, we get an idea of how ancient Indians fought and what they believed about warfare. The level of technology during the Epic Age, or the Vedic Age, those are two different ages kind of, was about on par with Assyria, or ancient China, or Trojan War era Greece, or New Kingdom Egypt. And in all these contemporary civilizations, most elite warriors rode chariots. Early horses were fairly small, and only selective breeding produced animals large enough to carry a person. So the technology of chariots came before the widespread use of horseback riding. Chariots are used in both the Greek Iliad and the Indian Mahabharata, which were written at about the same time. In the Iliad, chariots are vehicles to carry warriors into battle, where they engage in close combat in the ancient Greek style, sort spear and shield. But in the Mahabharata, warriors engage in archery battles from their chariots. Both the Vedas and the Mahabharata describe organized battle formations with lots of infantry and with chariots and war elephants as the main strike forces. So that was what Vedic Aryan warfare looked like. Armies of men with chariots or elephants engaging in archery duels while the poor infantry ran around and tried not to die. So that was how they fought their wars. But what did the Indians of the Vedic and Epic Ages believe about war? What was their frame of war? For this, we're going to turn to the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita is a section of the much longer Mahabharata, and it's often taken as its own work. It is one of the most important spiritual texts in world history, and still holds enormous resonance to this day. I'm a big fan myself, I've read it twice, I have a copy of it on my bookshelf. Like any good religious text, it can be taken a lot of different ways. It was used as inspiration by both Mahatma Gandhi and the man who assassinated Mahatma Gandhi, so lots of divergence there. But the Bhagavad Gita takes place before the decisive battle between these two factions of cousins in the larger Mahabharata. Moments before the battle begins, the warrior prince Arjuna asks his chariot driver Krishna to take him in between the two battle lines so he can look at his enemy. Though Krishna is actually an avatar of the god Vishnu, Arjuna does not know this when the, when the Bhagavad Gita begins. But when Prince Arjuna looks at the other side, the, other in, the enemy army, he sees many people he knows, many of the men who had taught him and raised him. Arjuna becomes distressed at the idea of fighting against his kinsmen and friends. He throws his bow and arrow aside and sits down on the chariot, melancholy at the knowledge of the battle that is about to take place. And this is an extremely human moment, isn't it? Arjuna's pain resonates throughout the ages. The knowledge of the killing and the dying that are about to happen and the despair at having to hurt people you once admired and trusted. What's the point? What good can come of any of this? But Krishna responds to this moment of despair. And this dialogue between Arjuna and Krishna, Prince Arjuna and his chariot driver Krishna, makes up the Bhagavad Gita, the core spiritual statement of the Hindu tradition. Throughout the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna talks about a lot more than war. He explains the concepts of karma and dharma, yoga, meditation, the nature of God, the universe, and the self. 
Krishna explains the Hindu beliefs of reincarnation and the everlasting self, and finally reveals the oneness and unity of all creation. But Krishna also emphasizes Arjuna's dharma as a kshatriya, a member of the warrior varna. Dharma as a word does not have an exact English equivalent, but can be understood roughly as something like righteousness, merit, or duty. Krishna tells Arjuna that he must follow his dharma and fight in the battle to come. Here is what Krishna says in chapter 2, verses 18 through 21 of the Bhagavad Gita. The body is mortal, but that which dwells in the body is immortal and immeasurable. Therefore, Arjuna, fight in this battle. One believes he is the slayer, another believes he is the slain. Both are ignorant. There is neither slayer nor slain. You were never born. You will never die. You have never changed. You can never change. Unborn, eternal, immutable, immemorial, you do not die when the body dies. Realizing that which is indestructible, eternal, unborn, and unchanging, how can you slay or cause another to slay? Verses 31 through 38. Considering your dharma, you should not vacillate. For a warrior, nothing is higher than a war against evil. The warrior confronted with such a war should be pleased, Arjuna, for it comes as an open gate to heaven. But if you do not participate in this battle against evil, you will incur sin, violating your dharma and your honor. The story of your dishonor will be repeated endlessly, and for a man of honor, dishonor is worse than death. These brave warriors will think you have withdrawn from battle out of fear, and those who formerly esteemed you will treat you with disrespect. Your enemies will ridicule your strength and say things that should not be said. What can be more painful than this? Death means the attainment of heaven. Victory means the enjoyment of the earth. Therefore, rise up, Arjuna, resolve to fight. Having made yourself alike in pain and pleasure, profit and loss, victory and defeat, engage in this great battle, and you will be freed from sin. This is the ancient Indian frame of war, the original Aryan ethic of war in a nutshell. A member of the warrior class, a Kshatriya, must follow his dharma or incur dishonor and sin. He must take action without heed for consequence or reward, participating in correct behavior out of his sense of dharma, following his duty. Earthly rewards are irrelevant to the greater arc of the universe. It is the conduct of oneself and one's soul, one's dharma, that matters. This is a framework for a heroic individualized style of warfare that is very common in ancient societies. It is less the result of the fight, but how one fights that matters. If one fights for a just cause and behaves correctly, they have nothing to fear in life or death. The Mahabharata makes it very clear that war is terrible, a tragedy, a great disaster, but it is also the duty of a Kshatriya to engage in righteous war. Righteous heroic action, brave and passionate, committed without fault of reward, that is the first ancient Indian frame of war. It's worth pointing out that frames of war are, like promises and speed limits, made to be broken. The heroic code of warrior dharma is not followed throughout the rest of the Mahabharata. In fact, the way everyone behaves throughout the epic is entirely at odds with Krishna's advice. It would be as if Zeus appeared to Achilles in the middle of the Iliad to tell him about righteousness and salvation, showed him the nature of the universe and God, and told him not to do a bunch of terrible things. And then Zeus vanished and the story resumed, with Achilles doing all those terrible things he was told not to do. 
To be fair, this also kind of happens in the Bible too, if you know your Bible. People doing exactly what they were told not to do. The heroes of the Mahabharata violate their warrior dharma. They start out fighting the battle honorably, but as both sides get frustrated, the warriors start to commit dishonorable and immoral acts in order to win, including Arjuna himself. They are more worried with the result of their fight than in how they fight, and the result is disaster. These actions and violation of Dharma end up with most of the cast dead by the end of the story, and the world plunged into a new dark age, the age we currently live in. You thought the dark age started with 9-11, or COVID, or the release of the 2019 version of the Cats musical. Nope, it started here, with the last battle of the Mahabharata. But what do we, what do we see here? We see a frame of war being established and people immediately breaking it all over the place. The ancient Hindu texts tried to establish a warrior code with rules and obligations, the need to behave correctly in combat. Rules of engagement, if you will. But just like in the modern day, those rules of engagement are strained, weakened, and fall apart when one side gets desperate enough. All the admonitions of Krishna cannot restrain men from committing evil, even when there is a heroic warrior code to guide them. The frame of Vedic war, the frame of Aryan war, did not hold up to the messy reality, even within the very story that set it up, the Mahabharata. Around 600 BC, the patterns of Indian civilization began to change. Initially, the Aryans had been wandering tribes led by their chiefs, engaging in war against each other and the Adivasi and Dravidian inhabitants. But now they began to settle and transform into established city-based kingdoms and republics. By the end of the Vedic age, ancient India was divided up into political entities that struggled for power. The rulers of these kingdoms and republics came from the Kshatriya Varna, the warrior class, but their bureaucrats, administrators, and priests came from the Brahmin or priestly Varna. The Vedic age was fading away into a period of transition from a time of legendary warriors and heroic combat into a more complex world of states and war and politics. This new age in India's history was much more complicated than the ages of the Vedas or the epics. Money and commerce became a big deal as Indian kingdoms began to trade with the rising Persian Empire. Kings and princes maneuvered and schemed for territory and riches. It was a confusing time full of new ideas and new beliefs. The power-hungry rulers, the profusion of wealth, and the apparent immorality of society stood in stark contrast to the noble ideals of the Vedas and the epics. This upheaval allowed people to challenge traditional Hindu practices. One way of challenging the old norms was a path of asceticism, a kind of philosophy where people practice abstinence, austerity, and discipline, self-denial. One such movement claims to be as old as Hinduism itself, though they share many of the same broad concepts. It is called Jainism, after the Sanskrit word for conquest. What Jains seek to conquer are not human enemies, but the passions and desires that keep the soul from achieving enlightenment. Jains practice a lifestyle and philosophy centered on non-violence and non-attachment, with some adherents living isolated, minimalist, ascetic lifestyles. Many Jains are vegetarian and reject violence in all its forms. Jains have a powerful belief in karma, in the corruption of the soul through the accretion of bad karma. Only self-discipline and sometimes deprivation, as well as good acts, can rid the body of this bad karma. 
The most important Jain religious leader was the sage Mahavira, who was so committed to his lifestyle that he is said to have starved himself to death to finally rid his body of all its bad karma. Jainism's top competitor in this period, and the religion that would spread from India around the globe, was Buddhism. The original Buddha was born Siddhartha Gautama, a noble prince in a well-to-do family. Buddhist traditions hold that Siddhartha Gautama became di distressed at the thought of death and the constant cycle of reincarnation advanced by Hinduism. He went on a spiritual journey to find freedom from suffering and learned from many teachers, including minimalist ascetics similar to the Jains. Eventually, Gautama decided that there must be a middle path between the cycle of Hinduism and the extremity of Jainism, a path to escape the cycle of rebirth and achieve nirvana, the end of suffering. From his reflections, Gautama learned of a completely new dharma and became the first Buddha, or enlightened one. By the time he died, the Buddha is said to have achieved nirvana and shown many others the way. See, Jainism and Buddhism didn't just offer different ideas of truth and enlightenment, they offered an alternate society. In Buddhism and Jainism, there was, in theory, no caste, no varna, no assigned place in the world. Even women could attain nirvana or burn off all their karma, rather than being constrained by their social status. Buddhism and Jainism were popular among merchants and traders, who as part of the Vaishya Varna saw a way to achieve spiritual equality with their social betters. Buddhism and Jainism began to spread as challenges to the established Hindu traditions, which also began to evolve in response. This all was nothing less than a multi-pronged religious revolution. And as we will see, these new ways of seeing the world also affected ways of war. These religious traditions I've just described, I'm not just doing this because it's part of ancient India, but because it affected the way they fought. What have I been saying throughout this podcast, right? War in culture, war in society, war in religion are always intermingled. Buddhism and Jainism, along with Hinduism, would affect the ways that the Caesars of India fought their wars or even, in one case, refuse to fight at all. By 500 BC, northern India had moved from the Vedic Age to an age of warring states. Powerful kingdoms and republics were emerging, even as religious beliefs were diversifying and trade was beginning to flourish between India and the Persian Empire. Thanks to oral traditions and histories, right about now is when we can finally get some decent dates and actual concrete historical figures from ancient India. So starting in the 500s BC, the Kingdom of Magadha became the most powerful state in northern India. Magadha was located on the rich, fertile plain of the middle Ganges River, and its kings ruled a centralized state that began to exercise military power on a scale previously unseen in India. The first great king of Magadha was Bimbisara, who may have been India's first ruler to create a standing army, in contrast to previous Aryan warrior bands. Bimbisara led multiple conquests before he was overthrown and replaced by his son Ajatashatru, who probably reigned from 516 to 489 BC. Apparently, Ajatashatru either locked his father up and starved him to death, or Bimbisara resigned in favor of his son, and then starved himself to death. Which is probably exactly what you'd say happened if you starved your father to death. 
So hey, next time your parents make you mad, tell them that if they don't like the nursing home, you have a new idea for elder care. Bimbisara and Ajata Shatru lived at roughly the same time as the Buddha and Mahavira, and Bimbisara was allegedly the Buddha's close friend and protector. So a lot of the histories of Magadha can come from both Buddhist and Jain oral traditions, and these two traditions don't always agree. Multiple choice history here. Both Buddhists and Jains, for instance, claim that Bimbisara was one of their adherents and supporters. But both of them agree that Ajata Shatru went to hell, and that kind of tracks. Either way, Bimbisara and Ajata Shatru transformed Magadha into the major power in northern India. They used their enormous economic and military power as well as several military innovations, such as early siege weaponry like catapults and scythed chariots. A scythed chariot has blades attached to the sides, either on the spoke of the wheel or on the chariot's body, so it's just rolling around chopping people in half, like ancient era Mad Max, just a crazy murder cart rolling at you at top speed. Like a lawnmower, but for humans. But anyway, over the next two centuries, Magadha continued to expand its power, conquering more and more of the Ganges Plain. Most of its rulers were Kshatriyas, members of the warrior Varna, and though the kingdom passed from one dynasty to another, the old Varna social structure remained in place. But this all changed around 345 BC, when a guy named Mahapadma Nanda seized the throne from the ruling family of Magadha. Now, Mahapadma Nanda was not a Kshatriya. He was a Shudra, a member of the lowest Varna. Some sources say that he was a barber. Either way, he pulled a Sweeney Todd and went from cutting hair to cutting heads. Uh, Mahapadma Nanda conducted purges of the ruling Kshatriya class, with some histories calling him the destroyer of the Kshatriyas. What the barber king and his sons created was called the Nanda Empire, centered on the Ganges River, stretching across North India from modern Delhi to around modern Kolkata or Calcutta. This shaky military state amassed a huge amount of power and wealth, with one history claiming that the Nanda rulers had an army of 200,000 infantry, 20,000 cavalry, 3,000 elephants, and 2,000 chariots. Even with some exaggeration, this was obviously a large army, the product of a large centralized empire. But it seems like the Nandas were also extremely unpopular. This was partly because of their low origins, their low Varna origins. But apparently they were also just jerks. <laughs> the Nanda kings were supposedly cruel, greedy, and hated by their subjects due to excessive taxation. They had a big army, sure, but their approval ratings were in the sewer. So this was the situation in India in around 326 BC, when a brand new invader came rolling down the Khyber Pass. It was, drumroll please, everyone's favorite alcoholic psychopath, Alexander the Great and his Macedonian army. Now, I'm not going to talk about this too long. This isn't Alexander's story. But Alexander and his army came in like a wrecking ball and smashed the Indian kingdoms of the Upper Indus Valley, an area known as the Punjab. But then the defeated kings told him about another vast empire to the east, a land of gold and wealth beyond imagining, the Nanda Empire. Now, the locals were probably trying to point this young lunatic foreigner at the unpopular Nanda rulers. You know, hey, we'll get those two guys to fight and maybe they'll leave us alone. But Alexander's troops, 10 years into a deployment, mutinied when they heard that he wanted to extend their deployment and keep invading places he hadn't even known about five minutes ago. The mutiny forced Alexander to turn back west, and the brief Greek rampage through India was over. Alexander would die three years later. I want to point out, though, 
Alexander's invasion of India never got farther than like the fringes of the subcontinent. He never faced the Nandas, the most powerful Indian state, who probably heard rumors from the West and were like, what they doing over there? What Alexander did do on his drive-by invasion was create a power vacuum in the Punjab area. He had busted up any large kingdom he found, and the ones he left behind were weak and fragile. By creating this power vacuum, Alexander had cleared the way for the first Caesar of India. His name was Chandragupta Maurya. Chandragupta Maurya is one of the most important figures in Indian history, so it's a shame we know almost nothing about him for certain. Western historians didn't even know he existed for a long time. Greek historians talked about a great king named Sandracatus, who had supposedly encountered Alexander the Great when Chandragupta was still a young man. It wasn't until the 1790s that someone put the pieces together between the Sandracatus of Greek history and the Chandragupta of Indian history. Even then, all that proved was that this guy existed. Pretty much every source on who Chandragupta was, where he came from, what he did, and even how he died is different. This is one of the reasons ancient history can be so frustrating. There's stuff we just don't know and never will know. Historians and archaeologists figured out the story of Chandragupta and his empire very slowly. They used archaeology, they used newly found bits of Greek histories, they used Buddhist and Jain traditional accounts and texts, all of which revealed one of the greatest forgotten empires of ancient history. Chandragupta Maurya has been described by some as the Indian Julius Caesar, but as one historian points out, you know, Maurya came first, so maybe we should call Caesar the Roman Chandragupta Maurya. That's how I got this title, Caesars of India. But we know when Caesar was born, who his parents were, some idea of what his early life was like. And we have none of this for Chandragupta Maurya. Buddhist sources claim that he was related to Siddhartha Gautama, the first Buddha. Other sources claim he was a Kshatriya and a relative of the Nandas. It's just as likely that Chandragupta was neither and was actually a member of one of the lower Varnas, maybe a Vaisya. Multiple choice history, remember? But Chandragupta was only half the story. The other half was his chief minister, Kautilya, a political and strategic mastermind. It was the tag team of Chandragupta Maurya the Conqueror and Kautilya his advisor, the man on the throne and the power behind the throne, who would build India's first truly great empire. Kautilya, also known in other sources as Chanakya, was a Brahmin. He had been a minister at the Nanda court before being exiled and sought revenge against the evil overlords of the Ganges. He made his way to Punjab in a city called Taxila, near modern-day Islamabad in Pakistan, and started trying to recruit a candidate to overthrow the Nandas. At some point, he took the young Chandragupta as his protege after realizing his potential. One story says that Kautilya saw a group of young students playing a war game in the streets of Taxila, and one of the boys impressed him with his tactics and leadership skills, so Kautilya said, I choose you, Chandragupta. And I gotta say, the bar for leadership must have been pretty freaking low. Imagine going to a Call of Duty tournament to pick out the next president or something. That's basically what he just did. Either way, soon after Alexander's invasion of India, Kautilya and Chandragupta, brains and brawn, led an alliance of Indian kings to overthrow the vicious Nandas. Included in Chandragupta's army were almost certainly a few Greeks. Some people believe that Chandragupta had actually served as a mercenary in Alexander's army during his time in India, and that this gave him valuable military experience. 
It would make a lot of sense that Indian leaders have been taking notes during the Greek invasion and changing their tactics and strategies to cope with the new invaders. But Chandragupta's first attack on the Nandas was an outright failure. It sounds like he just tried to assemble an army marching the capital city of Pataliputra and take the city in one campaign, but he overstretched himself and the plan didn't work. The Buddhist texts have Chandragupta losing a fierce, bloody battle to a general named Bhattasala. One source has Kautilya and Chandragupta sitting down and trying to make a new plan after this big defeat. Then they spotted the little boy eating the large flatbread by nibbling around the edges first. This gave them the little light bulb moment, right? Instead of taking the whole empire in one big gulp, they would wear it down before the final battle, nibble around the edges before coming to the center. Sadly for all of us, we have almost no details about the course of this war. Seriously, we just have, and then Chandragupta won the war, pretty much. The lack of detail is annoying, but we can picture it, can't we? Guys, it must have been a massive conflict, a conflict that stretched across all of northern India, from the Himalayas to the ocean, from the Indus to the Ganges. It's not hard to imagine dozens of chariots swarming over the open plains, formations of elephants plowing into helpless infantry. Maybe Chandragupta was mounted on one of these elephants, or in his chariot. Maybe Kautilya was back at the camp, making ne next week's campaign plan. Imagine sieges of mud-walled cities with troops from Afghanistan and the Punjab and maybe even Greece swarming up the battlements and Greek engineers building catapults to take out the towers. This had to have gone on for years, campaigns through the forests and floodplains and river crossings, one of the greatest wars of the ancient world, and we just don't know much about it. We do know that Chandragupta and Kautilya won. In alliance with other Indian kingdoms to the south and a powerful hill chief that Kautilya had won over, they chipped away at Nanda supremacy over northern India. And in 320 BC, about, they captured Pataliputra after a massive lengthy siege. The last Nanda king was allowed to leave, but only with as much wealth as he could carry with him. Kautilya ensured that Chandragupta was seated on the throne as the new overlord of India, and when the powerful hill chief protested, Kautilya had him poisoned. Chandragupta Maurya was ascendant, king of Pataliputra, the first Caesar of India, with his kinda evil prime minister right behind him. Even if Chandragupta wore the crown, I think it's pretty clear that Kautilya was the real power in this relationship. The entity Chandragupta founded the Maurya Empire lasted from around 320 to 185 BC. So when is this exactly? Let's see what was up elsewhere during the Maurya Empire's existence. China would unify into its first great empire, the Han Dynasty, in the 200s BC. The Roman Republic would take over most of Italy and defeat Carthage in the Great Punic Wars. Pyrrhus of Epirus would go on his delusional rampage before being killed in a street fight. Greek kings, the successors of Alexander, ruled most of the Middle East and Persia. The 300s to 200s BC are one of the first times in history when we can get a really solid, consistent narrative of events in Europe, the Middle East, India, and China all at once. And these civilizations knew of and interacted with each other. Buddhist and Jain merchants made their way up the Khyber Pass and wound up in Persia or Egypt or Greece. Greek scholars and diplomats ended up at Chandragupta's court in Pataliputra. Chandragupta's greatest challenge since taking the throne came around 305 BC, when a second Greek invasion came down the Khyber Pass. This was led by one of Alexander's successor kings, the Diadochi. 
a man named Seleucus I Nicator. His mission was to re-establish the authority Alexander had once held over the Punjab. Seleucus led the fearsome Macedonian army that Alexander and his generals had used to conquer most of the known world, and he probably figured that he wouldn't have much trouble in India. After all, Alexander had made it look pretty easy. The Greeks had heard about some new guy in charge down in India, but he probably wasn't so tough. But Chandragupta came out fighting. This was his house now, and these pale weirdos with their stupid helmets were not welcome. Again, we don't have a lot of details about the course of this war, but again, you gotta imagine, from all the evidence we have, the war was a decisive Mauryan victory. Imagine the lines of pike-wielding infantry and heavy cavalry, marching to the Indus expecting an easy fight, but they run face-first into a massive, well-organized army of elephants, scythed war chariots, and ranks and ranks of Indian archers. Imagine Seleucus's surprise when he finds out that the Indians are now united under one of history's great conquerors, backed by one of history's most ruthless political leaders. So yes, Seleucus lost. The peace treaty makes that clear. Seleucus surrendered his claims to any part of India and also gave up most of Afghanistan to Mauryan rule. Some sources claim he even arranged a marriage between Chandragupta and his daughter. In exchange, the Mauryan emperor gave Seleucus 500 war elephants, which seems like a huge amount, and it is, but Chandragupta seems to have had around 9,000 in total, which is a stupid huge number of war elephants. Still, Seleucus seemed to be happy to get away with anything, and his elephants would give him a major edge over other Greek successor kings. They played a decisive role a few years later at the Battle of Ipsus in 301 BC, where the teenage Pyrrhus of Epirus fought on the opposing side from Seleucus. So there's your nice little tie-in to last week. All this, all this stuff is connected. So at its height, under Chandragupta's grandson Ashoka, the Mauryan Empire controlled almost all, all, almost all of India and Afghanistan. It ruled over more of India than any other power would until the British in the 19th century. Now there's plenty of debate as to how centralized this empire was. Was Chandragupta making laws directly, or levying taxes from Gujarat or Afghanistan or Kalinga? Probably not. But the kings of those areas paid him homage as their sovereign, a kind of indirect rule. According to the Greek diplomat Megasthenes, Chandragupta fielded an absolutely massive army of 600,000 infantry, 30,000 cavalry, 8,000 chariots, and 9,000 war elephants which is probably a few sizes too big, but that's just ancient sources for you, and it's still pretty clear that the Mauryan military was massive. Military commanders on the frontiers ruled the empire from the major cities of their regions, and the Mauryas built a massive road network to connect these command hubs to the center of Pataliputra. These weren't crazy roads like the Romans built. In some cases, it probably consisted of little more than clearing out the forest along a path, but they allowed commerce and trade to flourish, and this made the Mauryan emperors fabulously wealthy. This was a golden age of art, architecture, culture, and prosperity. Megasthenes claimed that the Mauryans had an army of massive ants that dug gold for them, and this is so obviously full of crap that later historians didn't take this Greek diplomat seriously when they're like, oh, look at this, Megasthenes said this, this is worthless. But that's why it took so long for Western historians to realize that sometimes Megasthenes was telling the truth. There was a large, powerful empire in India to rival the Romans, the Greeks, or the Chinese, all watched over from Pataliputra by the Caesars of India. 
With his victory over Seleucus, Chandragupta faced no other rival. He ruled the largest empire India had ever seen and had crushed anyone who opposed him. And the rise of the Mauryan Empire wasn't just the work of Chandragupta. It was the work of his ruthless prime minister Kautilya as well. And this brings us to our second frame of war. In 1904, British archaeologists discovered an ancient Indian text known as the Arthashastra. The Indians already knew about it, but the Western world didn't know about it until it was found. And this immediately became one of our most valuable sources for understanding the Mauryan Empire. The Arthashastra is a masterpiece of political theory, a handbook for rulers and kings. Basically, empire building for dummies. And its main author appears to have been none other than Kautilya. Chandragupta's evil prime minister slash puppet master. In the Arthashastra, we find ancient India's second frame of war, a frame for an age of ruthless imperialism. Remember our first frame? The Bhagavad Gita described how Indians thought about warfare in the heroic and epic ages. The Arthashastra took all the Bhagavad Gita's moral philosophy and noble ideals and threw them over a cliff. Because the Arthashastra is ancient India's evil overlord handbook. If Kautilya resembles anyone, it's Niccolo Machiavelli. And the Arthashastra is very similar to Machiavelli's The Prince. Now, the Arthashastra was almost certainly not Kautilya's work alone. The centuries after the Mauryan Empire saw it written and rewritten, and the most recent edition we have dates five centuries after Kautilya died. But Kautilya's bits were the heart and soul of it, and he gets the credit. The Arthashastra has a lot to say on government, law, economics, diplomacy, and rulership. It explains the way that a leader should behave in Kautilya's eyes. But unlike Krishna's advice to Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, Kautilya is ruthless, cynical, authoritarian. A king should do whatever it takes to gain power and keep it. Right and wrong, dharma and karma have nothing to do with it. Oddly, Kautilya says outright that peace is preferable to war. Peace is more profitable and less risky. But if you have to fight, there are three different kinds of warfare. Open warfare is fighting at the place and time indicated. Creating fright, sudden assault, striking when there is an error or calamity, giving way and striking in one place are types of concealed warfare. That which concerns secret practices and instigations through secret agents is the mark of silent warfare. Silent warfare is like black ops CIA stuff, verging in some cases into outright terrorism. And Cotilia loves silent warfare. The Arthashastra is always talking about spies and secret agents, and recommends that a king spy on his own ministers and test their loyalty. Cotilia even proposed a secret police. So yeah, this guy wants to have an ancient Gestapo. Cotilia advises his audience to turn his enemies' generals and family against him, instigate revolt, spread propaganda, and assassinate enemy leaders. An assassin, single-handed, may be able to achieve his end with weapon, poison, and fire. He does the work of a whole army or more. To take a fortress, the attacker should first try to assassinate the commander, sow dissent, and use secret agents to open the gate. Only when all the dirty tricks fail should a commander actually lay siege. But this here is one of my favorite pieces of advice. Keepers of prostitutes or acrobats, actors, dancers, or showmen, employed as agents, should make chiefs of the ruling council infatuated with women possessed of great beauty and youth. When pa 
passion is roused in them, they should start quarrels by creating belief about their love in one and going to another. During the quarrel, assassins should do their work, saying, thus has this passionate fellow been slain. So yeah, Cartelia literally advises drawing enemy leaders into love triangles as a military strategy. Death by Hallmark Christmas movie. Hmm, I would actually watch that Hallmark movie. But if you haven't noticed, this could not be less similar to our first frame of war. The Bhagavad Gita said that warriors should follow their dharma and participate in war without worrying about earthly matters. Righteous heroic action, brave and passionate, committed without thought of reward. That was the Vedic and epic frame for war. That was the Aryan frame of war. What mattered was how you fought, not the result. But the Artha Shastra offers a completely different take. For Kautilya, the architect of the Maurya Empire, warfare is cynical and ruthless. The ruler should do whatever is necessary for victory, whether that means peace or war, kindness or cruelty, honor or dishonor. Have your enemies murdered, have your people watched, encourage treason and dissent. It was less how you fought, but whether you won that mattered. Amoral, ruthless strategy, cynical and scheming, whatever it takes to win, that was Cautilia's frame of war. That was the frame that created the Mauryan Empire. And if you ask me, these two frames of war were a product of their times. The Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita were composed to reflect an age of heroic individualized warfare, where people behaved according to an almost code of chivalry in the clan-based society of the early Aryans. The Artha Shastra was written to reflect an age of empires, large-scale armies, complicated politics and diplomacy and chaos. This age saw sons starving their fathers to death, low Varna barbers assassinating their kings, and a prime minister who poisoned his allies. The old noble values seemed long, long gone. This was a different India, and it created a different frame of war. Now, that isn't to say that everyone in this age behaved like Cotillia thought they should. Just because there's a frame of war doesn't mean people follow it. Frames of war, like speed limits, are made to be broken. We've already seen how the Vedic frame of war didn't even hold up within the Mahabharata, since Krishna describes an ethical frame of war, and then everyone immediately violates it. It's equally certain that not everyone in ancient India behaved as ruthlessly as Kautilya prescribed. People still had morals, decency, senses of guilt. There were Buddhists and Jains and devout Hindus who held to Dharma and Karma, and probably looked at all this terrorism and murder with horror. Kautilya's frame of war was a complete 180 from Krishna's, but it was too cynical. Even for its age, and even for its greatest practitioner. Because one man at least could not stand the new Indian way of war. And this was none other than Chandragupta Maurya himself. In 297 BC, a prominent Jain leader named Bhadrabahu informed the emperor that as a result of his great wars of conquest, a famine was about to blight the land, a famine that would last for a dozen years. All of Chandragupta's violence was about to ruin the people of India. So Chandragupta did something interesting. He abdicated. He stepped down and gave this throne to his son, Bindusara. Then Chandragupta went south to live his final days out in exile and isolation. According to the Jain traditions, Chandragupta died alone, just as Mahavira had done and just as so many other Jains had done before and since. Chandragupta fasted. He starved himself to death to burn off all his terrible karma the karma that he had gained from all his wars of conquest. To this day, a Jain temple stands on Chandragiri Hill, the place where Chandragupta had essentially 
committed suicide. The ruthless frame of war that Cautelia had created proved to be more than the human soul could bear, even its first great follower, the first Caesar of India. As long as anyone could remember, a massive set of stone pillars and inscriptions had been scattered across South Asia. They all bore the same indecipherable script, and their origins were unknown, but the artifacts were strangely uniform, with slight variations but obviously part of a set, scattered across hundreds of miles from Kandahar in Afghanistan to the Ganges Delta, from the Himalayas to the Indian Ocean. Whoever made these inscriptions was either extremely well-traveled or commanded the level of authority never seen before or since in India. In the 19th century, British scholars began the work of deciphering the ancient script on these scattered relics. They were an object of great curiosity since they seemed to be India's oldest surviving examples of writing. Only in 1837, just as the British were preparing their first invasion of Afghanistan, did James Princip begin the arduous task of translating what we now call the Brahmi script, India's earliest deciphered written language. But even translated, the edicts were still mysterious. Who had erected them? The monuments only referred to someone called Devanampaya Piyadasi, which means something like beloved of the gods. It took another investigator digging through Buddhist chronicles on Sri Lanka to discover the real identity of the ancient author. The man whose words covered South Asia and even Afghanistan was a legendary, beloved figure, long remembered by Buddhists as the greatest leader in the history of the earth. His name was Ashoka, the third ruler of the Mauryan Empire. Ashoka the Great was Chandragupta Maurya's grandson. He would see the Mauryan Empire to its height, the greatest Indian empire the world has probably ever seen or ever will see, from the mountains of Afghanistan to the mouth of the Ganges, from the Himalayas almost to the very tip of India. We know this for certain because of all his rock edicts, which clearly mark the limits of Mauryan rule. He was the greatest Caesar of India, one of the most powerful rulers in human history. Ashoka was probably born around 300 BC. His father was Bindusara, son of Chandragupta, and his mother was allegedly the daughter of a local Brahmin who was prophesied to marry the king. Her dad just said, all right, and just dropped her off at the imperial court. Go get him, girl. Hey guys, women aren't treated well in this time period. We saw Seleucus's poor Greek daughter passed off like a bag of beans in a peace treaty, so I don't know what you expect. We don't even know the name of Ashoka's mom for certain. It's multiple choice history. But Ashoka's mom was only one of many women in Bindusara's harem. And Bindusara had a whole mess of sons who shared the title of prince with their half-brother Ashoka. The Buddhist text Ashoka Vadna claims that Ashoka was, um, ugly, and this made him one of Bindusara's least favorite children. He can't have been that unpopular since Bindusara kept sending them out to crush rebellions and govern distant provinces. Maybe he just didn't want to look at him. No one in this episode is a model parent or son or brother or really anything. Ashoka was not the number one pick in the draft for the throne of the Maurya dynasty. All the sources tell a different story, but that much is clear. He wasn't the original heir. 
What is also clear is that when Bindusara died sometime around 270 or 268 BC, there was a succession crisis. Multiple princes claimed the throne, including Ashoka. Ashoka had been governing the western portion of the empire from the city of Ujjain, but he raced back like a thunderbolt and seized control of the capital at Pataliputra. Now, Ashoka executed at least a few of his brothers after he seized power. Some sources state that Ashoka killed 99 of his brothers, but that number seems a little too perfect to be accurate. But if it's true, Ashoka had 99 problems, and then he had none. Now Ashoka was on the throne, and I think we have a pretty good gauge of his character based on what just happened. He sounds like the exact kind of king Cotelia would have wanted for the Moria Empire. The guy who will do anything to win, and does it, and wins. <laughs> Ashoka had a wicked reputation. Some sources call him early on Shonda Ashoka, Ashoka the Fierce, or Kama Ashoka, Ashoka the Pleasured. I'll leave that last one up to your imagination. The Ashoka Vodna describes Ashoka's cruelties, like his torture chambers, or that time he beheaded his ministers for failing to show him the proper respect, or that time he burned his concubines alive when they cut down his favorite tree. One Chinese author later claimed that Ashoka literally went to hell to figure out new ways to torture people. Ashoka bro, I need you to turn that energy level down about 25% or so. Now maybe these events didn't happen, like Washington and the Cherry Tree, they may have been invented to illustrate a point. But it is clear that Ashoka reigned like a tyrant. He was the mightiest king in the world, and who could stop him? Ashoka continued the wars of conquest that his father and grandfather had begun. In 261 BC, these campaigns centered on a kingdom called Kalinga, in the area of the modern state of Odisha in the Republic of India. Kalinga was known for its peaceful behavior, but it was also one of the last holdouts against Mauryan rule in India. Ashoka led his armies in the four-part combination his grandfather Chandragupta had pioneered, infantry, cavalry, chariots, and elephants. And nothing could resist him. The army of the Mauryan Empire was a well-honed, well-disciplined war machine, and it chewed into the kingdom of Kalinga. Again, we have very few details from the sources, so we have to picture it. Imagine this small kingdom preparing to receive the greatest army the world has ever seen, under the famously fierce Ashoka. Imagine the shock of the scythed chariots, the trumpeting of hundreds of war elephants, the thundering of cavalry and the tramp of infantry and siege engines. Imagine a local army, helpless against this onslaught, trying in vain to resist the full might of the empire. They failed, and Ashoka conquered Kalinga in what was by some accounts one of the bloodiest wars in Indian history. Ashoka looked out over his conquest. Kalinga was ravaged, destroyed, burned down. Ashoka's rock edicts tell of thousands of slain, many more dead from other causes, and just as many deported. The catastrophe, the mass death, the enormous slaughter and brutality of the great conflict seemed to have suddenly come home. This was all his fault, this conquest, this bloodshed, this war. He had done this. And guys, something happened. Something changed. How do I describe this? You know what? I can let Ashoka speak for himself, because he tells us in his edicts, his rock edicts left across India, what happened to him one day in Kalinga. The beloved of the gods, King Priyadarsi, conquered the Kalingas eight years after his coronation. 150,000 were deported, 100,000 were killed, and many more died from other causes. 
After the Kalingas had been conquered, Beloved of the Gods came to feel a strong inclination towards the Dharma, a love for the Dharma and for instruction in Dharma. Now Beloved of the Gods feels deep remorse for having conquered the Kalingas. That comes from Rock Edict number 13, which has been found all over India and even in Kandahar, Afghanistan, on the outer limits of the Mauryan Empire. And you're listening to this and maybe you're thinking, oh, you felt sorry for it, boo-hoo. And that's fair. But find me another ancient conqueror who talks like this and get back to me. Alexander, Julius Caesar, the kings of Assyria, the kings of Sparta, the kings of Persia, they reveled in their victories and triumphed in their massacres. But here's a guy telling his people to their faces that he regrets it. And not just them, he's telling us centuries and millennia later. What could have caused this change of heart? Well, it seems that Ashoka had a religious experience when he saw the slaughter of his conquest of Kalinga. And he converted to Buddhism. Not sure if converted is the right word, but that's the word I'm using. There are many, many different accounts of Ashoka's conversion to the Buddhist faith. Multiple choice history. Some say it began before the conquest of Kalinga and that this war just intensified it. Others state that Ashoka's conversion was just a gradual one over time. Many give credit to his first wife, Devi, apparently a powerful influence on the emperor. I mean, there's no way to be sure, but I personally like the interpretation of a sudden realization. It seems much more dramatic to me. Like, think of all these scenes you know from our own cultural history. The scales falling from Saul's eyes on the road to Damascus, or Jean Valjean after robbing the priest in Le Miserable, or Boromir after he tries to take the ring from Frodo. That moment of sudden, agonizing realization. Whatever happened, it was a different Ashoka who walked away from Kalinga, who inscribed those rock edicts that stretched across India. A different Ashoka who did his best to follow the way of the Buddha and gave up warfare entirely to practice the arts of faith and peace. And I mean it, this is unique. I know of no other great conqueror that not only changed his ways, but bared his soul on stone for all the world and all the future to see, and rock edicts placed all over his empire. It would be like if Emperor Palpatine had a completely unprompted change of heart, called off his stormtroopers, and slapped a coexist bumper sticker on the Death Star. But Ashoka didn't retire from his throne and retreat into a monastic life, punishing himself for his sins like his grandfather did. He decided to lead his entire empire to follow the way of the Buddha. And this created the third of today's ancient Indian frames of war. Here is how Ashoka describes his new frame of war from Rock Edict 13. And for the following purpose has this rescript on morality been written, in order that the sons and great-grandsons who may be born to me should not think that a fresh conquest ought to be made that if a conquest does please them, they should take pleasure in mercy and light punishments, and that they should regard the conquest by morality as the only true conquest. There's some shades of Jainism in there as well, if you didn't notice. Jainism literally means to conquer, not, um, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. Now, I've linked every ancient Indian frame of war to a text. The heroic Vedic or epic frame of war was exemplified by the Bhagavad Gita and its ideas of a warrior's dharma. The ruthless conqueror's frame of war was spelled out in the Arthashastra in its notion of winning at any cost. But Ashoka rejected both. 
He proclaimed that there would be no more conquests out of principle, and if war must be waged, even if limited and careful, it is still immoral. Ashoka's rock edicts reject aggressive war entirely. They still talk of conquest, but of the next world. And the only way to conquer the next world is through Dharma. We've discussed Dharma before as a Hindu concept of duty or correct conduct, righteousness and merit, but Ashoka saw Dharma differently. Thus speaks the beloved of the gods, the King Piyadasi. There is no gift comparable to the gift of Dharma, the praise of Dharma, the sharing of Dharma, fellowship in Dharma. And this is good behavior towards slaves and servants, obedience to mother and father, generosity towards friends, acquaintances and relatives, and towards Ramanas and Brahmins, and abstention from killing living things. See, Ashoka had established a frame of military conduct that was dramatically different from the heroic ideals of the Vedic Age or the cynical notions of Kautilya. The Mahabharata describes war as terrible, but the heroic duty of a warrior if his conduct is good. War is good if done correctly. Kautilya describes war as just part of a leader's toolbox, something to be used for his benefit. War is neither good nor bad, just a tool. But Ashoka takes a third option. War is bad, full stop. In Ashoka's frame, warfare is wrong, and one should only take part in it when necessary. Ashoka never forbids violence or rejects it entirely. Any empire in the ancient world required a certain degree of state violence just to function, and Ashoka never disbanded the Mauryan military. But these were seen as necessary evils, not as a positive good or just one more tool in the box. In the Mahabharata, how you fought mattered. For Kautilya, whether you won mattered. For Ashoka, avoiding fighting at all mattered. That was what mattered in the end. Now it's pretty clear that Ashoka was not a perfect Buddhist. He wanted to get rid of violence and warfare and killing, but he didn't get rid of the Mauryan military and that was pretty smart since, you know, it's still the ancient world, people are crazy out there. He didn't stop enforcing the law or even ordering people to be executed, though he did eventually ban the death penalty. There are even some records of him falling back into evil overlord mode before pulling himself back out of it once or twice. We've seen the frames ancient Indians tried to place on war, but we've also seen people failing to fit them. The human spirit is too complicated for that. The ancient heroes of the Mahabharata could not be the perfectly righteous warriors that the Vedic age demanded. Chandragupta could not be the perfectly ruthless conqueror that the Arthashastra demanded. And Ashoka could not be the perfect pacifist that he himself envisioned. But he was making the effort. He was trying and he is very open about the fact that he wasn't perfect. Here's what Ashoka says in Minor Rock Edict number one. I have been a Buddhist layman for more than two and a half years, but for a year I did not make much progress. Now for more than a year I have drawn closer to the order and have become more ardent. Ashoka believed in kindness to animals refraining from violence, and he tried to have his entire palace go vegetarian. But again, Progress was slow. This is from Major Rock Edict number one. Formerly in the kitchen of King Devanampraya Priyadarsan, many hundred thousands of animals were killed daily for the sake of curry. But now, when this rescript on morality is caused to be written, then only three animals are being killed daily, two peacocks and one deer. But even this deer, not regularly. But even these three animals shall not be killed in the future. 
guys, think about this for a second. This is the man who ruled the Mauryan Empire at its greatest extent. One at one time a bloodthirsty conqueror, one of the most powerful people in the ancient world. And it's almost like he's apologizing to us over the centuries for still killing these few animals. He's eager to tell us about his progress. Ashoka is one of those rare people from the ancient world who speaks to us directly and personally. He tells us his thoughts, what he was proud of, and what he felt guilty about. Admitting his imperfections, reassuring the people of his own time and the future that it's okay not to be perfect. You were trying and that's what matters. Perhaps you won't even be perfect in this life. Maybe you'll be a little bit closer in the next. And that's okay. You don't have to fit the frame, even if you designed it yourself. And no matter how rotten you were or are, it's always possible to try and be better. Even the greatest Caesar of India was just doing his best, trying to be better. And this could be seen in the other laws Ashoka promoted in his lifetime. According to his edicts, Ashoka had trees planted and rest stops built along the imperial roads. He ordered medical facilities to be built and herbs to be stockpiled for both people and animals. He banned animal sacrifices and other animal cruelties. He had a welfare commission created for the poor. All things considered, he was just trying to build a more humane ancient empire. Now, Ashoka did not forcibly convert the Mauryan Empire to Buddhism. He openly stated that any and all religions were free to worship in his domain, which is another kind of wild thing that you don't see much in the ancient world at all, and made special protections for Hindu Brahmins and Jain holy places. But it's pretty clear that Buddhism was Ashoka's first love. He constructed a great temple at Bodhgaya, where the Buddha was supposed to have reached enlightenment. He had other temples and stupas built across India as a way of advancing his faith. Finally, Ashoka sponsored Buddhist missionaries to other kingdoms around the world, as far away as Greece, the Himalayas, and Thailand. This action turned Buddhism into the first truly missionary religion, a world religion that would spread around the globe. Ashoka claimed his reign to be his Dharma victory, the Buddhist triumph that he hoped would usher in a new age of humanity and spirituality. There was probably a more cynical side to this too. He was trying to weld together this crazy collection of territories into a unified empire, and Buddhism might just prove to be a handy tool. It cut across nationality, language, and even the old Varna system. It had the same appeal as later new religions, because it promised a spiritual equality compared to the old social structures of Varna. Ashoka wanted to create a spiritually unified empire with Buddhism as the glue, an empire of the soul instead of the sword. But it was not to be. After reigning for about 36 years, Ashoka died around 232 BC. As he fell ill, he gave away all his personal possessions to the Buddhist community, and even tried to donate the Mauryan Empire's entire treasury. When he finally passed away, according to the Ashoka Vadna, his only remaining possession was a half-eaten fruit, which he offered as his final donation to the faith. Ashoka had wanted to begin a new age, but he was one man and he could only do so much. The Mauryan Empire seems to have been a fairly unstable entity that could only work with a strong, energetic personality at the center. But none of Ashoka's descendants could fill his shoes. No one was able to match the willpower and skill of Chandragupta, Bindusara, or Ashoka. This is one of the problems with new empires that rely on powerful personalities at the top. You are not always going to be lucky enough to have a super competent emperor. 
empires like China or Rome or the Ottomans were able to last as long as they did because they built institutions and bureaucracies that could function in the absence of a strong leader. But it doesn't seem like the Moria Empire were able to achieve this before things started to go south. Because the Moria Empire lasted only 50 years after Ashoka's death. There were at least six more kings after him, but we know basically nothing about them. They continued to reign from Pataliputra, the great city that Chandragupta had conquered so long ago. But the territory under their control shrank over time. From the sprawling empire that Chandragupta had built and Ashoka had ruled, an empire which stretched from Afghanistan to Bengal, from the Himalayas to almost the very tip of India, the Maurya Empire withered away. While some have blamed this disintegration on Ashoka's Buddhist pacifism, it seems more likely to me that the Mauryas just went through a cycle of rise and fall, like so many other empires before or since. Though there is always the possibility that maybe they should have paid a little bit more attention to military power than they did. As admirable as Ashoka's pacifism was, it was probably not the best system to deal with invasions or rebellions. The small remnant of the Mauryan Empire, in its old power base of Magadha, was finally overcome in 180 BC. A Brahmin named Pushyamitra led a palace coup and assassinated the last Maurya ruler. The fact that he immediately began to perform the very animal sacrifices that Ashoka had banned seems to indicate a backlash against Ashoka's imperial Buddhism. The Maurya Empire, both physical and spiritual, had vanished. There was a last great irony to Ashoka's Buddhist revolution. For all his attempts to promote his newfound faith in India, the way of the Buddha never really called on in its homeland. Today, Buddhists make up less than 1% of India's population, and by the Middle Ages, it was almost extinct as a religious force as a major religion in India. But Ashoka's missionary trips, all those trips that he sponsored, did start Buddhism spread across Central Asia, Southeast Asia, Tibet and Nepal, and into China and Korea and Japan. Today, Buddhism is the fourth largest religion in the world, with over 520 million people around the globe calling themselves Buddhists. It became the first global religion, the first universal faith to reach such a wide audience. This, more than anything, is the greatest triumph of Ashoka. Not an empire of the sword or the spirit, but a community of the spirit. The last and greatest remnant of the Caesars of India. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? Well guys, I hope you enjoyed that little tour of ancient India. Again, I tried to keep it simple and narrowed down. There's a lot of archaeological findings and historical debates about many of these facts, so I tried to stick to what historians can know for certain or what the best sources say. A lot of ancient Indian history is up for debate, debate like I said, multiple choice history. So we know only the barest outlines of what I just told you. That's why I filled in the blanks for many of these battles and campaigns with visions of what probably happened. But I think all this is really fascinating. India in general is less well known than I think it should be, considering like a seventh of the world's population lives there. But they had a towering ancient civilization equal to anything in Europe or China. The Mahabharata is easily equal to the Iliad, much longer too. The Arthashastra is more detailed than Sun Tzu's Art of War. And the Rock Edicts of Ashoka describe a humane concept of governance that has no equal whatsoever in ancient history. 
Of all the conquerors we've talked about in this podcast so far, Ashoka is unique. The great conqueror who disavowed warfare completely and tried to lead his empire on a path to peace. Whatever the outcome, he may be one of the most legitimately admirable people in this entire podcast, despite his earlier deeds. But I started today's episode talking about how societies look at war, how they frame war, and that was my theme today. Thanks to a lack of sources, we are unable to know much about how ancient India fought its wars. We don't know like dates of battles, we don't have descriptions of many battles, no cut and thrust, not a lot of nitty gritty details like we have for something like Roman warfare or samurai warfare. But thanks to surviving texts and edicts, we can know what they thought about war, and that often tells us just as much about these people as the actual war does, what people wanted to be rather than what they were. Because the peoples of ancient India were asking a lot of the same questions about warfare that we ask today. The three different frames we've seen today were attempts to answer those questions. Is warfare supposed to be an honorable, noble struggle with rules, like the Mahabharata describes? I bet that would seem familiar to a medieval knight, or Bonnie Prince Charlie, or George Washington. Is war a ruthless, cynical act with no boundaries, like the Arthashastra says? That sounds like Genghis Khan, or William T. Sherman, or Henry Kissinger. Or is it something to be avoided at all costs, since any kind of violence is inherently sinful, as Ashoka would claim? That sounds like Martin Luther King or Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi himself took solace in Jain philosophy, the Bhagavad Gita, and the traditions of Ashoka to promote his ideas of nonviolence when he worked so hard to secure India's independence in the 1940s. What I want to leave you with today is the sheer humanity at the core of today's story. We find people asking moral questions about war that we still ask today. We see Prince Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita called to fight in a civil war, throwing away his bow and asking his chariot driver for spiritual guidance. We see Cautelia trying to write a guidebook for rulers that will create the perfect state, a cruel but pragmatic totalitarian regime. We see Ashoka trying to find a way to combine the very earthly responsibilities of empire with the spiritual edicts of the Buddha. And they all failed to live up to their frames of war. We've seen this over and over. They set up this frame, they set up this ideal of what war is supposed to be, and they fail to live up to it every time. But there was a common humanity in their failings. See, the people of the ancient world did not all think the same thing. They had constantly evolving ideals of what warfare and conflict should or shouldn't look like. And so do we. Modern societies are constantly trying to figure out what kinds of war are acceptable, whether any kinds of war are acceptable. People debate just and unjust wars, the ethics of certain weapons or certain methods. Why should we follow rules of engagement when they don't? What is and isn't an acceptable target? How much collateral damage is too much? All these questions. People debate all these things, and we have our own frames of war that fail to live up to reality. What I'm trying to get across here is that these are old questions. People have been trying to answer them for a long time, and maybe we've made very little progress. Maybe we're still asking and answering and unable to find the truth. But Ashoka might say that the very attempt is noble and necessary. We are trying to find our own way in the world, trying to perceive and understand the right, find our own version of what they called and call Dharma. We aren't the last to ask questions about the nature of war, and we dang sure ain't the first. 
that common humanity, that common quest for truth and righteousness is what links you and me with the Caesars of India. Thanks so, so much for listening today. I hope you learned something. Maybe this got you thinking a little bit about our society in its frame of war, or you enjoyed the story, or both. All of that is fantastic. If you like what you've heard today, please tell your friends about it, especially if they're your evil prime minister. If you don't, tell your enemies. Just don't let them lock you up and starve you to death. There are plenty more of my ramblings on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or just drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary. No matter what it is, tell me what you think. Tell me what you if you like what you've heard, if you dislike what you've heard. If you want me to talk about something else, talk about India more, talk about this more, I want to know. Again, thanks so much for listening, and I will see you all, same place, same time, next week on Unknown Soldiers.